Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Well, if you haven't already opened your Bibles to John chapter 12, if you would. Um, And if you were here last week, you heard Gus talk on the triumphal entry, as I mentioned earlier. And he he went all the way through verses 12 through verse 26. And so I asked Ryan to read verses 20 through the passage that I'm teaching on today just to set up the context for us. Um, And so if, if you will, open up to John chapter 12. If you'll remember the the context of what we're reading about here, what's been going on um, in John chapter 12 and what Mike taught on two years ago in John chapter 11, there was a major event that had taken place in Bethany that had caused quite a ruckus all throughout the area. And word about Jesus had spread by this point during his ministry all over the place. And it was this event that really came, um, that really led to this culmination where everything just sort of erupted at the seams. In the context of Jerusalem, people who were believers of Judaism, what was that major event that took place in John chapter 11? Come on, say it loud. What was that major event? You can even look at the heading in John chapter 11. Thank you. Okay, Lazarus was resurrected from the grave. We, we know in that story that Jesus, he um, was, was out doing ministry with his disciples and Mary and Martha sent a servant um, to give word to Jesus and his disciples that, to say, hey, hey Jesus, your, your, your disciple whom you love, Lazarus, Lazarus is sick and he's dying. And then Jesus made a comment where he said, this will not result in death, but will turn out for the glory of God. And then a few days later, what happened? Death. Lazarus died. And a, few, and a couple of days after that, Jesus said, let's go back and be with Lazarus for he's fallen asleep. And, and the disciples are like, oh, that's good. If he's asleep, that means he, he's going to get some rest and he'll be good. He says, no, 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 he's dead. And then Thomas says, well, let's go die with him also. And I've always understood, this is important, I've always kind of understood that, 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 that statement that Thomas makes, let's go die with him also, as just a dramatic statement that Thomas made. Oh, let's go die with him also. But we need to remember all of the things that have been taking place in Jesus' ministry, all the number of times when, when Jesus would do something or he would say something and it would... It would, it would divide what was happening around him. You would have people who are following him, wanting to be healed, wanting demons cast out of them, wanting something for themselves, wanting to be fed in other instances. And you had the teachers, the Pharisees and the scribes who were listening to the words that were coming out of his mouth and they were looking for a reason to catch him and to have him killed. And so to go back to Bethany, the area around Jerusalem, and ultimately into Jerusalem, Thomas was really making the statement of, Man, we know that really if we go back there, they just tried to capture us to kill us, but let's go back there to be with our brothers and sisters because we just experienced the death of a loved one, so let's go die with him also. Thomas is expressing some pretty incredible faith. And as Jesus and his disciples are approaching Bethany, we see Mary and Martha. First, Jesus is met outside by, Martha, by Mary or Martha, read it, I forgot. And then as he goes into Bethany, he's approached by the other sister, and they both tell him the same thing. Lord, if you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And then after some really profound and important conversation, um, Jesus goes to the place where Lazarus was buried, and he weeps. And then he makes a couple of statements. He tells those standing around, remove the stone. We can't do that. He's been in there rotting for four days, Jesus. The smell is going to be awful. He said, remove the stone. And then as soon as the stone is removed, he said, Lazarus, get up and walk out. And I I think this is one of the funniest things in all of Scripture. Lazarus walked out, and then Jesus said, hey, guys, go take off the bandages that are around him. (laughs) He looks like a mummy as he was walking out of the tomb. Lazarus walks out. He's alive now. 
his bandages, and he gets all unwrapped. And news of this event spread everywhere. Mike preached on this out of the, the, the story when, when, when Mary anointed Jesus with the oil. The very end of that passage, verses 9 through 11, it says that many people believed in Jesus because of Lazarus. People were coming from all over for, for, the, for Passover, but they heard about this thing that had taken place in Bethany, and, and everyone needed, needed to get a, a, a view of this guy who had been dead for four days and was now alive. And this is why, this is the reason why as Jesus is coming in on a donkey, he's riding on the colt of a donkey to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah 9 that, that Gus talked on last week. This is why people went to their booths from the, from the t festival of booths. They went to their tabernacles and they got their palm leaves and they were like, oh my goodness, look, there he is. That's the guy that rose that other dude from the dead. That's Jesus. They went and they got their palm leaves and they threw them out before him and they were saying, Hosanna, save now. Come save us. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Thinking that Jesus was probably going to lead some sort of revolt against Maybe King Herod in that area. And then ultimately, let's ride against the capital in Rome and overthrow Caesar. And let's establish Israel as the world power again. And it'll be like greater than even Solomon himself and King David. But Jesus makes this comment that we read at the end of, verse, verses 20, of that passage, verses 23 through 26, where he talks about how the Son of Man needs to die. Like a seed needs to die and be buried in order for it to bear fruit. And he, he starts this dialogue about anyone who wants to, to save their life, they have to lose it. Anyone who, wants to, anyone who wants to come after me must be a servant. He sort of flips their whole idea of the kingdom that he was coming to establish upside down just by speaking a few words that were pointed and cut straight to the hearts of those listening. We see now why a few days later the same people who were losing their minds throwing palm branches and screaming, come save us, were screaming, crucify him. Just a few days later. It's incredible. And then we come to the passage that we'll consider today. If you look at verse 27 with me. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, now my soul has become dismayed or troubled, some of your versions say. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It's significant that this voice speaks at this moment in history. There's debate amongst the people there as to what this voice was. They said maybe that was thunder from heaven. Or no, 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 he just had a conversation with some sort of angel. But scholars agree unilaterally that the voice that is heard is none other than the voice of God speaking from heaven. It's significant that the Father spoke to the Son at the beginning of the Son's ministry. We can read about it in the beginning of all of the Gospels. But in Matthew 3.17, Matthew wrote that, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Right after he was baptized by John the Baptist to start his earthly ministry. It's significant that as Jesus um, was manifesting himself to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration right before his journey to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his crucifixion, to fulfill the reason why God sent him to be crucified and to be buried, that, that, Jesus, that, that God speaks again. In Matthew 17, verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And now, as the Son was entering his last days before the cross, we hear the voice of God speak, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And God says, I have glorified my name through you, Son, and I will glorify my name through you again, Son. Incredible. The people heard this. And as I mentioned, there was 
debate as to where this voice had come from. And then Jesus spoke to them. In verse 30, he says, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. His voice has come not for my sake, but for your sake. The people heard a sound, but did not know the message that had been conveyed. Yet if the voice was for their sakes, why couldn't they understand it? What good was this voice if it was for the sake of the people who couldn't understand it? This voice assured Jesus, who was to die for their sakes, this voice was for their good. They heard him pray and they heard a sound from heaven in response to that prayer. That should have convinced them that Jesus was in touch with the Father. We can think of this verse as really saying that voice came more for your sake than for my sake. The reason why Jesus was was put on this earth to glorify the name of the Father and why God was saying, and you're going to glorify it. The whole reason of why we know this, but if you don't know this, listen. The whole reason of why Jesus came to this earth, we'll unpack this a little bit more later, was to do exactly what he was about to do, which is die and then resurrect. And the Father is confirming this ministry that Jesus had been doing. As Mike will finish in these next couple of weeks in John chapter 12 for us, this was the last few instances of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's interesting, as his ministry begins, the Father speaks. This is my son. And then as, as Jesus is manifested to his most close and intimate disciples that he, that he got closer to than anyone else, he says, this is my son who I'm well pleased with. And then now as Jesus is finishing his public ministry, we know that he said a few more things that people heard when he was on the cross, but as he was finishing his public ministry, the voice speaks again. A confirmation, this is my son, I've glorified my name through him, and I will glorify my name through him again. Incredible. The way God glorified himself through the Son was by sending him to die. And that's, if we continue reading, look at verse 31. Jesus speaks, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Um, This is interesting that we see uh, now. I know that as I was, when I first read this and I was studying it, I thought, well, that's not really going to happen until, I guess, ultimately, until Jesus comes again and he establishes the new heaven and the new earth and everything as we know it right now is done away with and everyone will be brought up to heaven and we'll we'll have to give an account for every idle word that we've spoken and and those who are who are believers will be will be set apart on the basis of the blood of Christ and nothing alone but everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus they will be condemned and they'll be separated but 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 what is Jesus getting at when he says no now now judgment has come now the ruler of this world has been cast out i was reminded of genesis chapter 3 verse 15 um, this is what scholars refer to as the proto-evangelion. It's just proto-first-evangelion good news. It's the first gospel pronouncement that we really see explicitly in Scripture. You can make some arguments in Genesis 1 and 2 that you can see tones of the gospel in there. You certainly do. But the most, it's most explicitly mentioned for the first time in Genesis 3, verse 15. Right after Adam and Eve fell, after they, they sinned, and they were, they were, they were read their, their punishments and the judgments that would be put upon them. In, in verse 15, these words are said. By God, I will put enmity between you, talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. I like the translation NIV that says, he will, he will strike your heel. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. This is the gospel. Jesus died. The darkest day in history. The Son of God, God himself, dead and put into a tomb. So as to say the kingdom, the, the domain of darkness struck 
the heel of man. Jesus is the ultimate offspring. He is the, the ultimate fruit of, of Israel. He is the, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who came who was born of a virgin. But when he rose again three days later, he crushed the head of the enemy. Jesus is referring to his crucifixion and to his resurrection. In Galatians 2.20, we read about this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith according to the Son of God who gave himself as a ransom for me. There's there's this interesting, um, profound dynamic that we see in the Christian life that our eternity and our identity has been completely transformed Our eternity has been completely secured. Our victory has been totally accomplished for us. Yet, we are still being more and more and more changed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's a a here and now, but still to come sort of process dynamic that we're going through in the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are gone. Behold, new things have come. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. But yet there's still this process of sanctification that Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2 where we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in us in order to will and act to fulfill his good purposes. Jesus totally and completely accomplished victory when he crushed the head of Satan overcoming death. And that victory will continue to be accomplished until that victory no longer needs to be accomplished anymore because the new heaven and the new earth will be established and that will be the eternal state forever and ever. Amen. So Jesus says this right now. Now judgment has come into this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In verse 32, if you look, Jesus, uh, he, he says, and if I... I'm lifted up from this earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. He was saying this to indicate the sort of death that he was about to die. Um, this idea of being lifted up, this, the, the phrase, the word that's used right there for lifted up is used twice earlier in the book of John. Um, Mike preached on this on Easter. If you were here on Easter, we can out of John chapter 3. Uh, verse 14, yeah, verse 14 and 15 is, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When, 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 the, when the bronze serpent was wrapped around the staff and God told uh, Moses to go hold up that staff so that everyone who had been bitten and who was dying from the snake bite, as long as they looked to the staff, they would be healed. This is a, this is a, a typology. It's, a, it's supposed to point forward to Jesus Christ. It's a symbol that could not represent anything other than Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross. So is this idea of him being lifted up referring to his death on the cross? I think absolutely it is. But we also read in John 8, verse 28, Jesus saying to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. This this phrase lifted up seems to be referring more to the exaltation of Jesus Christ after he was crucified, resurrected, and ascended up to man. I think Jesus, most scholars say that this is he is definitely referring to only the resurrection, or only to the crucifixion, rather. Because he says in verse 32, after all, in 33, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. But I fully believe that when we look at it in context with these other two verses in John chapter 3 and John chapter 8, Jesus is referring both to his crucifixion and his exaltation when he ascended up to the Father. He was lifted up to die to teach us the kind of death. And he was raised up, he, was, he, was, he ascended back up into heaven to show us the kind of glory, the kind of exaltation that Jesus Christ truly does possess as God over everything. Look at verses 34 and on. The crowd then answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how do you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? See, these, this, the crowd, these people who had been partaking in all of these things, as we talked about earlier, the crowd who was clamoring to get a, a view of Lazarus, and many people started to believe in Jesus, that he was the Messiah because of it, and 
for everything else that he had done. And now Jesus is saying these things and the crowd is like, wait, 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 wait. You're talking about this, this Messiah person, this, this son of man person that you're speaking of that's written about all through the Old Testament. What do you mean? What do you mean he's not going to be here? He's going to be lifted up. He's going to die? Isn't it written that the son of man must remain forever? You're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Jesus said to them in verse 35, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. The light was among them. What does it mean when he says the light would just be among them for only a little while longer? This could either mean that Jesus, uh, Jesus being there bodily present, Jesus would only be there for a little bit longer. We, knew, we know that Jesus said throughout the whole Gospel of John things like, it's good that I leave you, because when I leave you, I will send my helper, and he will teach you everything. This is in John chapter 16 concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He says, really, it's, it's to your benefit that I go because greater things you'll be able to do than even what I have done. We know that when, when Jesus sent his Holy Spirit, and, and in Acts chapter 1, we read about this, that he says in verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes in power on all the people of God. Now it's not just Jesus who is, when he walked and wherever he went, who is able to do the things uh, to, to, to glorify the Father. Now the Holy Spirit living inside of every single person who puts faith in Jesus Christ is able to do the sorts of things that Jesus was able to do. Jesus wasn't saying, you're greater than me. He was saying the amount of things that you'll be able to do to glorify the Father will be even greater than what I was able to do. And now we know that 2,000 years later, the, the gospel, the light of the gospel, the, the Holy Spirit, he has empowered maybe hundreds of millions, possibly billions of Christians over the centuries in order for his gospel to continue to be carried to every corner of the earth. And that will continue to happen until people from every tribe, tongue, and nation have heard the good news. And then the end will come. So he might be referring to just the, the, the amount that he would be bodily present with them. But I think, and that's certainly a possibility, and if that's not what he's saying here, the scriptures absolutely suggest that. Jesus suggests that. It's good that he leaves. I'm not going to be with you forever. But I think really what he's saying when he's talking about the light, he's talking about the good news of the gospel. The reason why we can call Jesus Christ the light is because of the story of redemptive work that he did on the cross and how that shines in darkness and darkness cannot overcome it. I believe that what he is referring to is this period of time that we still have where there's opportunity for people to surrender themselves to Jesus Christ. If you will, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We can unpack this just for one moment. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Peter writes, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some consider slowness, but he is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is a very important verse. Now, I've had this conversation I don't know how many dozens of times over the years, and I'm sure all of you, many of you at least, could probably relate with me in this. And over the last 2,000 years, I'm sure this conversation has been had by people maybe millions of times. Because when we read the Word of God, we're doing it right now. We're reading these promises from Jesus Christ himself out of the Gospel of John. And I know that I've, been, I've, been, I've come to a place where I've asked this question before. Lord, why... Why haven't you done this? And when are you going to do these things? It's been 2,000 years. What in the world is going on? What's taking you so long? Well, we see in chapter 8 that 1,000 years is like a day, and a day is like 1,000 years. So I guess in God's day economy or God's time economy, it's only been a few hours 
But we really get real insight into this in verse 9. Every single second, even right now, as every single second ticks by, as we're talking about John chapter 12, it's another second of patience on God's part. It's another second of grace that he's displaying to mankind. An opportunity for us to repent. That word repentance, it's a noun. It comes from the verb to repent, which literally means to turn around. Or It's this idea of a 180 degree turn. And if you're walking in one way and then something causes you to stop, to turn around and then walk in the opposite direction. That's what repentance is. And this is the thing that God wishes that every man would come to that understanding. This verse does not teach us that every single person is going to repent. This verse teaches us that God does not delight in anyone perishing. After all, we've all been fearfully and wonderfully made. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. We know that not everyone will be saved. But it's not for us to determine who will and who won't be saved. It is for us as the people of God to assume that the person sitting across from us that the person who's in our family that doesn't know Jesus, that the person who's in our workplace, in our school, whatever, to assume that that person could and will, in fact, be saved. That they will come to repentance. Every second that ticks by is another second of opportunity and patience on God's behalf, but opportunity on our behalf to repent and to receive the grace of God. Light is a very common thing. If you go back to John chapter 12, uh, light is a very common thing that we see throughout the whole book of John, the whole gospel of John. We, you could jump ahead and you look at verse 49, or sorry, yes, verse 45 and 46. When Jesus says that the light has come into the world, I think an important question for us to ask is who is the light? We know the answer is Jesus, but he even... It finishes, I'm kind of stealing from Mike's uh, passage for next week, but he even gives us insight and he kind of divulges this answer to the crowd as he continues this dialogue. But in verse 45 and 46, he said, And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as the light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And if we just look back all these places, all throughout the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, I'll read verses 4 and 4 through 6. In him was life, it's talking about Jesus, the word of God himself. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He overcame as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. In John chapter 3, verses 17 through 20, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is during his conversation with Nicodemus. I've I've heard this, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. When we speak so boldly and so black and white, so point blank about the gospel, it's offensive to people. The gospel is a very offensive message to proclaim because what the gospel teaches, it is good news. It's good news because it, it, it teaches us that there is a solution to our problem with sin, but it's, 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 it's offensive because what it tells everyone listening is that you have a problem with sin. And I've heard, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, that is so judgmental of you. That is so condemning of you to say that that people deserve to go to hell. Who are you to say such a thing? Jesus preached, oh, I can't even hand. Jesus did not come into, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. This has been true way before, since, since the beginning of creation. Well, since the beginning, since, since Adam and Eve sinned. This has been true way before Jesus fulfilled his ministry. That God is perfect and mankind is not. So way before Jesus said it, amen, I am the only way, I'm I'm the only truth, and I'm the only life. Way before that, there's always been this problem that God is perfect and we are not. 
Jesus didn't come into the world just to make us feel terrible about ourselves with his perfect life and to be like, you need to be better. You need to try harder. There's this false narrative that has infiltrated Christianity all over the world that, man, if you just try hard and you do enough, you'll be good. You'll be good before God. If that was true, then Christ's death was needless. Galatians 2, verse 21. It's purposeless. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here it is. From verse 31 and 32. Here it is, right here. John chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. This is the judgment that we're talking about right here. John chapter 3. Sorry, I'm reading from John chapter 3, and it's referring to John chapter 12. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. That's the judgment that has now come that Jesus is referring to. That light has shown in the world and we've been given this opportunity to either shrink back and retreat to a place where the light doesn't touch us so that we can continue to live in darkness or we step into the light and allow the Holy Spirit, allow Christ's light to illuminate us, to, to shine on every corner of our lives. Allow his righteousness, his goodness to overshadow our wickedness, the evil that's within us. To say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need you. Shine your light. We know that light is a great illustration that can be used. Uh, in, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but, but will have the light of life. Man, in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually says that we are the light of the world. And to be clear, we is referring to people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are the light of the world. No one lights a light, puts it, on a, puts it under a basket. But they, they light the light and they put it on a pedestal so that it can provide light for the whole home. Um, I was talking about this last night, but if you go, if you go into my son's, into Mateo's nursery, uh, we, we literally put like, like duct tape over even like the little lights that, you know, charges little stuff and everything so that it's pitch black in there. And we have double curtains over his windows, like the double blackout curtains. And when it's nighttime in there, I am telling you, that's the kind of darkness that Jesus is talking about, for sure, probably. Like, you can't even see your own face. And we all know, we all know what real darkness is. We've all seen that kind of darkness. This is the kind of darkness that's being referred to that's, that's indicative of, of the soul of somebody who does not know Jesus. This is indicative of all of, all of our souls apart from Christ. This is what characterizes sin. But man, even in, in my son's room, we put this towel under the door because there's like a little, like, I don't know, like a little sliver. And when we turn the hall light on, it wakes him up because light gets in there and he, he's like, whoa, light cannot be overtaken by darkness. Even a tiny little light. If this room was completely pitch black and I, I turned on like a little charger light, everyone would look to that because that's what light does. It does not allow darkness to persist. This is the kind of savior that we serve. To finish, uh, we'll go back to the top of this passage and consider verse 27 and the first part of verse 28. But to really see this section in context, we need to consider first verses 23 and 24. So if you'll read these verses with me, in verses 23 and 24 in John chapter 12, Jesus answered them, these are the crowds, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, verily, verily. This is a, a, a technique that would be used often in, in Greek to, to make a, a huge point. He's emphatically saying, this is super duper important. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In my studies, I love how Warren uh, Wearsby, and he's an author and wrote, has written a lot of commentaries. I love how Warren Wearsby unpacked this verse. Going into verse 27, he said, Jesus used the image of a seed to illustrate the great spiritual truth that there could be no glory without suffering, no fruitful life without death, no victory without surrender. Of itself, a seed is weak and useless, but when it's planted, it dies and becomes fruitful. There is, a both, there is both beauty and bounty when a seed dies and fulfills, its and, and fulfills its purpose. If a seed could talk, it would no doubt complain about being put into the cold, dark earth. But the only way it can achieve its goal is by being planted. Our Lord knew that he was facing suffering and death. And this was the way his humanity responded. As we look at verse 27, what I want to talk about in the hours is his earthly ministry and his atoning work was coming to a completion. I want to talk about five things that Jesus did that we'll refer to as the process of glorifying God. The process of glorifying God. And there's five things that we can look just in these clauses that are found in this verse. The process of glorifying God. The first one is that Jesus expressed true sorrow. Jesus expressed true sorrow. He said, now is my soul troubled or dismayed. In 1 Peter 5, verse 6 and 7, Peter writes, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In Hebrews 5, 8, we read, um, that although he was a son, referring to Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus Christ learned obedience to the Father because of what he suffered and endured. And we were talking about this on Tuesday night at our prayer meeting, talking about the, the trials and temptations that Jesus had to go through, Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. And one of the, I think it was Carla Morgan, while we were having our conversation, she, she made a point that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, and it's often, and it was often his his obedience that would lead to more suffering. We talked about this false narrative that happens all the time in Christianity that man, if you're just if you just pray hard enough and worship hard enough and give enough money, God will give you even more. That's your car, God wants you to have a nicer one. Be a better Christian. That's your house, God wants you to have an even nicer house than that. Just be a better Christian. You feel like that? Your health is in this situation. You have those infirmities. You, there's probably sin in your life. So you just need to pray harder, have more faith, and God will fix those things for you. Just be a better Christian. And we'll make it happen, guys. Well, that is completely a lie. Like, sure, that could happen. But the life of a Christian is characterized by suffering. Jesus' life was characterized by suffering. And that's how he learned obedience through what he suffered. That's how we learn obedience because though our trials and temptations overwhelm us, we serve a great God who says, hey, in the midst of whatever your anxieties are, whatever the things are that are weighing you down, just cast them upon me because I care for you. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7. The second thing that we see Jesus doing is he expressed an inward question. Earlier... Um, Aiden Brown, and he had no clue he was doing it today. I, I, like in the middle of the prelude, I went up to him. I was like, Aiden, can you read Psalm 103 for me? All the elders are not here right now. So y'all can call the elders out about that later. But Aiden did that. He came up here and read, read Psalm 103. And this psalm has always made a huge impact in my heart and mind. Because when you read verses 1 through 5 and then how he finishes it at the, begin, at the end, verse 22, David is doing something that's truly, it's, it's something that we need to really practice doing, church. He's having a sit-down conversation with himself. And he's like, okay, soul, here's what we're going to do. Bless the Lord. Hey, soul, remember everything that he's done for you. Hey, soul, remember all the benefits that you have. As Christians, we need to establish this kind of disposition before the Lord where we will get before him in his word, open the word of God, read the word of God, and say, okay, soul, 
Listen, read it, learn it, and then minister to yourself. We all need to have a, a sit-down conversation with our souls. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. All that is within me, praise and bless his holy name. Forget not all of his benefits. Now he's taken care of all your iniquities. Hey, soul, he's cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. Jesus does this. He says, and what shall I say? What shall I say? The thir thirdly, Jesus expressed an authentic plea. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This has some Garden of Gethsemane tones in it. Um, the Gospel of John is the only Gospel that doesn't, where, where the Gospel writer doesn't give us a whole lot of insight as to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, I've been reading through Mark in my quiet time, so I want to read from Mark chapter 14, verses 34 through 36 says, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he tells his disciples, Remain here and watch. In Luke and Matthew, he says, stay here and watch and pray. And they kept falling asleep, and he woke them up. Hey, come on, pray. Sit here, watch, be vigilant, pray. And then going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were all possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. We always talk about the gospel, about the, the work of Jesus. The, on Easter, Mike gave us even more insight into it, what Jesus went through. Gus talked about it last week as well. He took on this crown of thorns that was, pressed, that was pressed into his skull. He was stripped naked, and then the skin off of his back was torn. He was beaten. He was forced to carry this heavy, heavy cross-section of a cross fell under the weight of it, had nails driven through his wrists and his feet, and then he was lifted up. But the thing that, Je that Jesus was deeply distressed and anguish over in Gethsemane, and what we already see, see, see him here expressing, is that he knew that he, for the first time in history, from eternity past, and will be for eternity future, the first and only point in history, Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, would be separated from his heavenly Father, taking on the full weight of God's wrath and the full weight of my sin, the sin of Drew Cook. Fill your name in there. That's why I said, man, if there's, if there's any other way, Lord, just take this cup and let it pass. But the fourth thing Jesus did is that he expressed conformity to the will of God. Jesus expressed conformity to the will of God. He said, for this, he says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And when we finish in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, he says, not, not, not what I will but what you will. Yet not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. He expressed conformity to the will of God. We read in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can test and know, see what God's will, which is holy, perfect, and pleasing. In 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And he's referring um, back to Deuteronomy and to what Jesus says when he goes, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect in Matthew chapter 5. See, all of these things that we read here that Jesus did, this process of glorifying God, they're all things that we need to take a note of and apply in our own lives. We must express 
whatever true thing that the, that's happening in our hearts and minds and take that to the Lord, just like Jesus is willing to. We must have some self-evaluation that happens in our lives. We must give authentic pleas to the Lord. There's been things that I've been praying for for years that haven't come to pass. As I'm sure if we were to go around and talk to everyone in here, there's things that we've prayed for, that we've hoped for, that we've labored over, that we've, been, that we've despaired, that haven't come to pass. Jesus is saying, continue to pray for those things. We don't know what God's will is ultimately. We know his revealed will. It's in the word of God. But I don't know exactly how every single thing is going to turn out now until he comes back. But what I do know is that I serve a sovereign God who for whatever reason the things are happening, I know that this reason is in there, is in the mix. That he's allowed me to be where I'm at so that he can leverage and use my life for the process of glorifying himself and drawing others into his kingdom. We need to, 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 to conform to the will of God. So that lastly, what it says at the beginning of verse 28, we can do what Jesus did. Jesus diverted all glory to the Father. He said, but you prepared me for this hour. Father, whew, glorify your name. Whatever that means. And Jesus knew. By the time he was 13, my, my, my brother-in-law told me this. My brother-in-law, they're in town for Memorial Weekend, and he's a, he teaches, he teaches uh, reading, arithmetic, and Latin, which is crazy, to, to boys at a classical school in Dallas. And he, they're like 11, 12, and 13-year-old boys, and one of his 13-year-olds made a comment about, like, man, this is really hard stuff. I don't, this isn't very Christ-like that you're making us do all of this. And he was like, he was like, hey, bud, by the time Jesus was 13, he had the, old, he had the whole Old Testament memorized. He could speak four languages. And we're like, okay, all right. <laughs> but Jesus knew Isaiah chapter 53 where it said, where, 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 where Isaiah wrote, writing this prophetic, poetic, incredible passage about the Messiah and he says, but it was the will of God to crush him. Jesus knew this. He's like, this is the hour that you prepared for me. So glorify your name. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, we, this is a great verse. It's, it's, we often just kind of separate it from the passage and we use it. And it's a great verse to use. Don't get me wrong. It's a great verse to use, even if you don't know the context um, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. But the context of that verse, Paul is talking about this weird thing, eating food, eating meat rather, that was uh, previously from an animal that had been sacrificed to an idol, to a demon. So in the first century, there's Christians who didn't have a problem doing that, and there's Christians that did have a problem doing that. They're like, man, I, came, I come from, a, you know, from Greek worship heritage and I, I with a clear conscience I can't go buy that meat and eat it because I know that it was sacrificed at the temple of whoever Zeus Artemis Paphrodite whoever who cares Aphrodite but there's other Christians that are like it's just meat just pray for it and you're fine it'll be sanctified through prayer and it's good but the point that Paul is making here if, if we keep reading in verses 32 and 33 he writes Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many. Why? So that they may be saved. The reason, this is incredible, the reason why Jesus was saying glorify your name is because he knew that that would result in the salvation of everyone who believes. And when we look at the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the most practical way, other, you know, when it comes to the context of living in the world that God's placed us in, the most practical way that we glorify the Father is when we don't make it about ourselves. But we make it about, obviously, God first and about others. Even if it means giving things up that you don't have a problem doing. Even if it means putting yourself in a situation that might be very uncomfortable for you. Even if it means ostracizing yourself from people at your workplace because you're that crazy person that just only wants to talk about Jesus. 
and you should be willing to talk about other things. I'm not saying stop, just only talk about Jesus, but you should be talking about Jesus is my point. Even if it means that, that, you're, that you're willing to, to put yourself in a very uncomfortable situation and proclaim the mercies of God, even if no one accepts it, you're willing to do that. Because if we back up, if we really believe that judgment is coming to this world, and then if we don't believe, in, and if people don't accept this message of the light, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that means condemnation, you really have to hate somebody to not share that with them. And the way that we glorify God is by being faithful to do this. In closing, I want to read one more passage for you. Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. This context includes Paul's directions for Christian slaves working for human masters. But even in this role, their work was to be, was to be done as if they were serving Jesus. To honor and glorify God includes having a strong work ethic, means putting others before yourself, and it, being, and it means being willing to do whatever and to give up whatever for the sake of the gospel. That's how we glorify God as his children. Amen? Father, we do thank you for your word, which illuminates us. I ask that we would not be content in living lives of mediocrity, characterized by selfishness and self-serving agendas, that we would consider our Lord Jesus Christ, who is willing to endure the cross. In fact, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. He scorned the shame and is now seated at your right hand, interceding for us. Lord, with that same mentality, might we be willing with open arms and open hands to say, Father, glorify your name. Not my will be done, but yours. And we pray that in the beautiful and abiding name of Jesus Christ. Amen.